0: Okay, um, so The Greater Good, it's a film about the work of MI5 and it has a line in it that I think um, says a lot about the world that we we live in, Uh, the world that the Lord Jesus described in the second half of John chapter 15 that we were looking at last week. It's not a Christian film, as you might imagine, but this quote from the film could, I think, actually be the title for my talk this week, if I was speaking on chapter 15, which I'm not, but I mention it only because what we are looking at this week in chapter 16 really does follow on from that, and I think it gives us a sort of counterbalance. It gives us encouragement to follow the... Discouragement that we might take from the end of chapter fifteen—the um, discouragement of being told that one of the inevitable consequences of being a Christian is to be hated by the world. So the the line from the film uh, that came to mind when I was doing my preparation is: "You can do good, or you can do well. Sooner or later, they make you choose." And I think it's an interesting observation, um, which really does highlight the reality of this world. At some point, and maybe for some it's a common experience, people have to choose between doing good, as far as their own moral compass is concerned, and looking after their own interests, whether it be their career, their popularity, health and well-being, their family, or even their freedom, or even their lives even. And if that's true for non-believers, it's even more true for Christians, isn't it? Because in many ways, the moral standard that we should be trying to live up to um, is is so much higher. And it isn't about choosing things because we think um, certain things are the right things to do or not do. It's because we've got a mandate from God. Uh, If we love the Lord, we'll keep his commands. The things that God says are important and the things that God says that we should do or not do are often not the rights and wrongs of of this world. So it's inevitable that we'll have conflict. And if we dare to explain to someone that we're conflicted because of our Christian faith, then to varying degrees we will be hated. Not by everyone. And not all the time. The phrase the world in chapter 15 doesn't mean everyone in the world because we know that from personal experience, don't we? Friends, neighbours, colleagues, family who are not Christians. And yet often, maybe not always, but often they are respectful of our beliefs and we have good relationships with them. Yeah. But whether they're respectful or not, they're all part of a world system. Um, I think as uh, David Woods um, in a ministry um, or Thought for the Week a few weeks ago described it as a world philosophy, um, which collectively in the words of the Lord Jesus hates Christianity and everyone associated with it because it's under the influence of the adversary, Satan, the devil, the one who is referred to in the passage that we're going to read as the prince of this world. And the enormity of the challenge for us in the Great Commission of Matthew 28 is that somehow we have to go into that world and preach the gospel and make disciples. Or in the words at the end of chapter 15, we've got to testify about Jesus. We've got to tell the people who hate us about the love of God. An impossible task. Of course for us on our own but not with the help of the Holy Spirit and that is the encouragement of chapter 16 so that was a bit of a long introduction wasn't it um, but as I said I wanted to remind us of the warnings in chapter 15 Um, because we didn't focus on them too much last week anyway, and also because they set the scene for what we're going to read now. And, And actually, the first part of today's passage also revisits the subject of persecution for the same reason, I think. The Lord was giving them an impossible task, but he was also promising all the help that they would need to make the impossible possible. So let's read now. John chapter, let's start at the end of John chapter 15, because if you've got a Bible like mine with headings, you'll see that the the passage under the heading, the work of the Holy Spirit, they do start it at the end of chapter 15. So verse 26, and we're going to go down to verse um, 15 of chapter 16. So Jesus said, when the, whole, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he... in that passage and in 20 minutes or so i'm not going to be able to comment on all of it um, but as we read at the end of chapter 15 jesus repeats the earlier promise that we saw um, a couple of weeks ago uh, to send the holy spirit and then in chapter 16 we learn more about what the holy spirit was going to do but before we get into that let's look at the first few verses where, um, as I said, it tells us more about the kind of persecution that Christians should expect, and I think there is value in looking at that um, this morning. Um, And I was wondering why Jesus was telling them about persecution, Um, when, as it said in verse 6, he already knew that It was adding to the grief that they had already because he was leaving them. But I think verse 1 holds the key. In fact, I think it holds the key to everything that we read in the the upper room. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Jesus was preparing them for the future. It's sometimes um, said that ignorance is bliss, but truly that's the, that's the wisdom of the ostrich, isn't it? Putting its head in the sand. Jesus wanted them to know what was coming and why it was coming and to reassure them that they'd be able to face all the challenges ahead. And I think that's how we should understand the the phrase fall away in verse one. In fact, your version, um, it might say be stumbled i think sometimes when people read the word fall away they they think it's talking about you know losing your salvation uh, i think the um, the be stumbled translation in other versions is a little bit um, more helpful because the greek word literally means to be faced with an obstacle and what we have here i think is jesus preparing them and us to face the obstacles that they were going to encounter so they'd be more able to to push through them and so that they wouldn't give up. He talks about two consequences of religious intolerance. He talks about the possibility that they might actually be killed and he talks about the likelihood, I think, um, that they'd be put out of the synagogue, that they'd be excommunicated from the Jewish um, community and for Jewish Christians that was a big deal. Uh, early Christianity was was seen very much as a as a as a um, an extension of Judaism, and many Jewish Christians would have hoped to have carried on um, with the with with the new revelations that had come to them about the Lord Jesus, but carried on with the benefit of the Jewish community and going to the synagogue and and so on. But Jesus said that they'd be excommunicated from that community. Why did Jesus mention just those two things? Was he just highlighting two ends of the persecution spectrum? Um, Death at one end and being put out of the synagogue at the other? Uh, Possibly. But actually, I think that maybe the order of the two things is important. Because... It reflects the way the devil works. Stage one would be to separate and isolate the believers from their communities. Stage two would be everything else. Because without the support networks they have grown up with, every other persecution, even the smallest of things, would be, would be harder to bear. And of course, that's why Christians are called together into new communities. Churches to provide love and encouragement and support and friendship, not to mention opportunities for collective worship, prayer and teaching. That's why Hebrews 10 and 25 encourages us to not give up meeting together, because when people start to drift away from the church community, they become more vulnerable to the prowling, roaring lion of 1 Peter 5. So I think it's clear that for the Christian, persecution in some form or other is, is inevitable, if we're standing up for Christ. It might be nothing more than um, some degree of social exclusion, although that in itself can still be very, very hurtful if you've ever experienced that. Um, or it could be much worse. As, the, um, as William Tyndale, um, the martyr, William Tyndale, said about his own persecution. And remember, this was a man who gave us the first big translation of the Bible into English, and he he encountered a lot of opposition and persecution because of that. He said, I never expected anything else. So it might not happen very often, but nevertheless, like Tyndale, it is something that we should expect. It's something we shouldn't be surprised about, and we certainly shouldn't complain to God if uh, things start to get difficult for us because of our faith. But the the other thing about persecution that I wanted just to touch on here um, is in verse 2, where Jesus said that persecutors might actually think that they're doing a service to God. Now, we know that's what the Apostle Paul thought, wasn't it, before his conversion? And he persecuted the church with passion and diligence and absolute sincerity. And Jesus said in verse 3 that people do that because of ignorance, because they don't know any better. Now, I was wondering why he might have said that. It was almost like he's jumping to the defense of the persecutors, but I was thinking about how how easy it is to fall into the devil's trap of seeing our relationships with unbelievers as in some way adversarial, especially if they're doing things that we might regard as some, some form of persecution. After all, people usually reciprocate the way they are treated, don't they? If, we, if we're treated with respect, we show respect back. If we're loved, we love back. But what about when we um, are in the world, the words of Jesus, hated? How do we react to that? Do we see unbelievers as, as enemies? Um, or do we show them love regardless? It's not always easy, is it? But maybe it helps to appreciate that people who oppose and attack Christianity don't always do it because they are evil. But actually, because in their ignorance, they think it's the other way around. They think we are evil. There have been so many terrible sins done in the name of Christ. So many stories of people being manipulated in quasi-Christian cults. So many reports of abuses within the established church, even and so many portraits of weird Christian behavior. It's not surprising, is it, that even decent people might view us with a degree of suspicion. But even if we do always respond with love and kindness and even if we do convince people that we're not excessively weird and even um, if we do persuade people that our churches are safe places to go, will it make any easier? Um, Will it make it any easier to share the gospel? Maybe. But that's not the encouragement of chapter 16. I'm finally going to get to it. Because the encouragement comes from the revelation that it's not our job to convince a hostile world that it needs a saviour. Yes, we have a role to play testifying about Jesus as best we can and doing good works and living good moral lives which are consistent with what we say we believe in but the work of convincing people is the work of the Holy Spirit and John gives us four areas of the Holy Spirit's work in the passage that we've looked at um, just now. Let me just read verses 8 to 11 again. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Four things, I think, we have. Actually, three things there and the fourth one. I'll come to that. as a bit lower down. Uh, But the first three, verse eight. It says that he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin. Uh, Some versions, your version might say, convict the world of guilt in regard to sin. The Holy Spirit brings the guilt of sin home to the human consciousness. So men and women, boys and girls, will turn to God for forgiveness. And we see that in Acts chapter 2, don't we? Remember on the day of Pentecost when Peter enabled by the Holy Spirit, preach that um, amazing, powerful sermon. And right at the end of it, 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 um, he said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized. So the Spirit was at the work in Peter. The Spirit was working through Peter, enabling him to to preach. But he was also at work in the hearts of the audience, convicting their hearts of their need to repent. So that's the first thing. He convicts people with regards to their guilt. But verse 8 also says that the Spirit convicts or proves to the world about righteousness. And that's important because to be saved, people need more than just guilt. It doesn't help anyone just to feel guilty about sin. They need to see and understand what they need to do. That was Charlotte Elliot's problem. Um, And they need to take hold of the righteousness that God offers. Because the world has a different view of righteousness, doesn't it? It's all relative. I'm righteous because I'm not like the man in prison, or I do more good works than the next person, or I I stick to the rules on COVID lockdown, and uh, and uh, uh, and so on. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pointed the crowd to the Pharisees, the most righteous people they could possibly think of, and he said that unless they were more righteous than that they'd never enter the kingdom of heaven. His point was obvious, wasn't it? We cannot enter heaven by any standard of human righteousness. And yet here, in verse 10, um, after Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would convict the world about righteousness, he said, I'm going to the Father. In other words, I think he's saying that human righteousness isn't good enough for heaven but clearly my righteousness is because i'm going there the resurrection and the ascension of jesus vindicates his life and his teaching he was the only one good enough for heaven and therefore the only one good enough the only one righteous enough to die for our sins And the Holy Spirit can reveal that to the human heart, that only in Christ can we be truly righteous. Only through Christ can we find total forgiveness and the removal of all our guilt. As Paul said in Philippians 3 and 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul didn't work that out on his own. He was convicted of it by the Holy Spirit. The third area of the Holy Spirit's work is conviction about judgment. And that's something which underlines the seriousness of sin, isn't it? And the consequence for the sinner, the wages of sin is death. It says that the gospel isn't a take-it-or-leave-it thing. It says that it's not a lifestyle choice if you're looking for something new. It says that it's not something you do if you just want to get more involved in the community and join a choir and listen to an organ play and whatever. Um, Judgment is the inevitable consequence for anyone who rejects Christ, along with the devil who, who stands condemned already. So the Holy Spirit makes it clear to the human heart that the gospel is something that just cannot be ignored. You have to make a choice about Christ. So that's three things, three areas of the Spirit's work. Conviction about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. The the fourth area is in verse um, 13, where Jesus says, similar to what he said in chapter 14, that the, that the Spirit would guide disciples into the truth. So I think here we see the continuation of the Spirit's work um, after a person believes. It's not just, um, he, doesn't, um, he doesn't just leave people at the point where they've, they've got saved. That's not the end of his work. Um, first, he convicts people of their sin and their need of righteousness, um, and the consequences of rejecting that righteousness. And then for those who believe, there is the fourth thing, the ongoing revelation, whereby he guides us into deeper truth. As it says in First Corinthians 2, the things that God has prepared for those who love him are the things God reveals to us by his spirit. So um, my time has Pretty much gone. Um, The bottom line is this. Although Jesus spoke of the hatred of the world towards him and his followers and the types of persecution we might expect as a result of that, he still wants us to testify about him. That's, That's our role, that's what we've been called to. But he wasn't asking us to do it on our own. The Holy Spirit is here to help us, to work in us. And through us, as he did on the day of Pentecost, to do what we could never do on our own, to persuade people, um, people who might not like us very much, but to persuade people of their their need of the Saviour. And that's what makes the Great Commission possible. It's a, a commission which you remember from Matthew 28 ends with the promise that he would be with us always to the very end of the age that's a promise I think which is fulfilled in the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit and that's the encouragement of chapter 16 because whatever persecutions we might face in life and whatever rejections we might possibly receive when we try to share the gospel or however many special Christian events we might organize and no one shows up and so on and so on the Holy Spirit is right there with us all the way and he's not just watching from the sidelines he's he's actively involved. And, and really, I guess in that sense, the Great Commission's not really our work at all. It's God's work. Specifically, it's the Holy Spirit's work. And we just have the privilege of being channels of that work, channels of his blessing um, whenever we have opportunity in the world around us. So uh, I haven't commented on everything. Um, I haven't really said much about right at the ends. Lovely bits there about the communion between that, that, the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But I think I, uh, I think I'll leave it there and, and hand back.